0: Ever walked by a shelf in your local bookstore full of books wrapped in brown paper? They're Blind Dates with Books, where you buy a book without knowing the title, the cover, or the author, and it's a great way to discover new books you might never have picked for yourself. We're giving away five Blind Dates with Books. Executive editor Amanda Nelson will take a trip to her local indie in Richmond called Chop Suey, And pick five at random off their shelves to mail to five random winners. To enter to win your own blind date with a book, go to bookriot.com slash blind date. And sign up for our upcoming Read This Book newsletter, where we will send you a single solitary book recommendation once per week. That's bookriot.com slash blind date to enter. Or go see if your local indie participates with their own blind date shelves. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Uchura. We're recording on Thursday, September 26th. Hello, Kim.
1: Hello, Alice. How are you?
0: Um, I am recovering from my move, which was over a week ago. So you'd think I'd be all set by now, but my calves, they tell a different story. <laughs> uh, I was, As I was mentioning immediately prior to our pressing record on this, I uh, I have like three boxes left out of like 27 that have odds in that. You know when you just have paper yeah. when you move? Mm-hmm. Like boxes with paper in them. And I'm just like,
1: I don't know where this goes. So that's where I am. That is very impressive. And as I – I moved into the, the townhouse I live in now with my sister like three ish years ago, uh, and I <laughs> there are still boxes I think that really were never unpacked that just got shoved on a shelf and <laughs> who knows what's there. So I'm impressed. <laughs> that's a uh, that's actually kind of a
0: an encouraging story. So thank you for that. Oh, I will say so. There was concern on the part of my girlfriend if uh, the books would all fit, and uh, I yeah. will say they mostly fit which is astonishing. But I have made her a promise that, you know, when you like run out of shelf space and you start stacking books in front of the back, like the books behind, there are books behind basically, and you have book stacks in front of them. So she was like, I don't like that. And I said, that's fair. (laughs) Looks very messy. So I promised her I would get rid of enough books that we will not be stacking books in front of books. That is a good goal.
1: Yeah. That's my goal for the end of the year. That's a good goal. Yeah. I try to do that too. Like clean the shelves periodically to pull stuff off that you're not interested in keeping anymore and just keep it, keep it clean. Um, so I have one piece of follow-up. Uh, I finished reading She Said Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story that helped ignite a movement by Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey, which is the story, um, they did about the Harvey Weinstein, um, harassment accusations. Um, so how they broke that story and all the investigating that went into it. Uh, and it is, it was fascinating. It was so great. Um, so I definitely, if you're interested in that story, if you're interested in investigative reporting, if you're interested in, um, this conversation that they wrote about between a bunch of women who have been uh, active and influential in the Me Too movement, they reported about that and shared that near the end of the book, um, which I thought was really interesting too. So um, if that is a, a topic that is of interest, she said by Jodi Cantor and Megan Tui, um finished it and very much recommend it.
0: I just added it to my hold shelf on the library. So thanks for reminding that. Yes,
1: good. Use more library books. Then you don't have to try and make shelf space for them. <laughs> That's a book, book nerd trick right there. Uh <laughs> All right. Uh, So with that, I will uh, get to our first sponsor. Uh, So we're sponsored by These Boys and Their Fathers by Don Waters from the University of Iowa Press. Uh, These Boys and Their Fathers touches on Don Waters' early life with his single mother and her string of dysfunctional men and his later search for and encounters with his father. Uh, But the book quickly expands into a gripping account of the life of a 1930s pulp writer, also named Don Waters, with whom Waters becomes obsessed. Uh, This sounds fascinating. Uh, This wildly original book blends memoir, investigative reporting, and fiction. to sort out difficult aspects of family masculinity and what it means to be a father um Waters in the book, he shifts among genres and voices and eras to get at kind of these big questions that we have about how to live at peace with ourselves and our family, um, both the family we're born into and the family that we make. And it explores the crossroads between masculinity, paternity, fantasy, depression, avoidance, and acceptance. And That is a lot of stuff all together. Um, so it is written in a mischievous structural inventiveness and uh, has a, it's a fearless examination of lost family and our search for answers. Uh, so that is uh, these. Boys- Boys and Their Fathers by Don Waters. Uh, Thank you for sponsoring us this week. Uh, and so with that, we will shift gears into our first uh, regular segment, which is nonfiction in the news. And it has been an interesting and exciting one for the, the nonfiction world. Um, Alice, you have the, the first story we're talking about.
0: Yes, the National Book Award long list was announced. And uh, of course, they have some great nonfiction on there, some of which we have talked about on the podcast. So I'm just going to name the nonfiction long list real quick. So it is Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest by Hanif Abdurraqib, The Yellow House by Sarah Broom, Thick and Other Essays by Tracy mcmillan Cotton, What You Have Heard is True, A Memoir of Witness and Resistance by Carolyn Forche, Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland by Patrick Radden Keefe, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present by David Troyer, The End of the Myth from the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America by Greg Grandin. This is so exciting. Just (laughs) some of these books I have not (laughs) heard of, and I was like, oh, I've got to add that to my list. And then we have three more, Burn the Place, a Memoir by Ileana Regan, Race for Profit by Kianga Yamata-Taylor, and Solitary by Albert Woodfox with Leslie George. So of that list, which I'm sure you all immediately memorized, Kim, we have talked about... In my memory, we talked about the heartbeat of Wounded Knee. Yep. Definitely. We talked about Thick, and we talked about the Yellow House. We
1: have. Do you remember any others? I can't remember if we talked about Say Nothing, but... Yeah, uh, a bunch of those are new, which is really exciting. Um, The other thing that I was really excited about, the New Yorker story we'll link to points this out, um, that of the nominees, um, only one of them has previously been nominated, which I think is really cool. Um, And another thing I noticed is that I think it's equally split between men and women, which I always like. This is one of my favorite book awards because there's just always some really interesting variety in there.
0: No, that's it's super exciting. And there are at least a few that I have had on my library uh, hold list, just to speak of that again, mm-hmm. um, including Say Nothing, because I heard that the audiobook is awesome, but in general, the book is supposed to be
1: great. But um, I also really interested the Kiana Yamata-Taylor "Raise for Profit. Yeah. And um, uh, Go Ahead in the Rain. I have heard nothing but good things about that one from the people who have read it. So that that one... Made it onto my list as well. So, National Book Award long list is out. Um, I think that they will get a short list to break it down to five into in like mid um, to early October, and then the National Book Awards are in uh, late November. So by November we will know the actual winner. But for now, the long list is a great place to find some book recommendations,
0: and we'll have that link um, in the show notes
1: if you guys don't want to Google. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> So the story that I wanted to point out that we'll link to is from the New York Times, and it is called "It's a Fact: Mistakes Are Embarrassing the Publishing Industry." And it is a whole article just about like what is going on with all of the high-profile nonfiction books with uh, errors in them, and how embarrassing that is for both authors and publishers. Uh, and it's interesting because it kind of goes into the um, push and pull that there is in publishing between who should pay for that kind of fact checking—if it's authors, if it's publishers. And then it goes into like who is liable for um, libel in the sense of like responsible for those errors. Uh, is it the publishing house or is it the author who maintains the copyright to the work? Um, it also has an interesting thread about um, how kind of the current political climate is bringing more scrutiny to particular kinds of nonfiction books. And so um, things that may not have been caught as errors before are kind of being caught now specifically because people are looking for that. It's just a really interesting article that kind of um, gets at all the different little facets of this issue of fact-checking and nonfiction and what is happening and if there are going to be changes to the way the publishing industry works to try and make fact-checking more of a a paid part of The process for nonfiction, especially kind of high profile books. Interesting.
0: Did you ever, I probably have asked you this, but we've done now over 40 episodes. So I have no memory of the past. So (laughs) did you ever see the movie Desk Set from 1957?
1: I don't think so.
0: It's starring Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. And she works in the reference department at a major television studio. And it's like them, it's like her and a group of I think three other women surrounded by books. And so all of these television writers will be calling and like to verify facts or be like, hey, I need to know like the names of all of Santa's reindeer or like that kind of thing. And I was just like, okay, so if this television studio in like the 1950s had this, you know, entire fact checking department, basically, why are book publishers not doing that? But I guess that this whole discussion is what is happening around that. So that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's interesting.
0: I just really wanted to talk about the movie desk set, (laughs) but love it so much. That is fair. (laughs) And with that, our second sponsor, uh, a book that I personally am reading right now and loving is Motherhood So White by Nefertiti Austin, published by Sourcebooks. When Nefertiti Austin, a single African-American woman, decided she wanted to adopt a black baby boy out of the foster care system, she was unprepared for the fact that there is no place for black women in the mommy wars. She soon realized that she would not only have to navigate skepticism from the adoption community, who deal almost exclusively with white women, but surprisingly from her own family and friends as well. Motherhood So White is the book Nefertiti wishes she had had when she was beginning the journey to adopt her children. It confronts the intersection of race, gender, and parenthood so that others, be they African American, Latinx, Asian, biracial, or white, can find solidarity and empathy on their path to and through parenthood. In this unflinching account of her parenting journey, Nefertiti examines the history of adoption in the African-American community, faces off against stereotypes of single Black motherhood, and confronts the reality of raising children of color in racially charged modern day America. Again, that's Motherhood So White by Nefertiti Austin. Pick it up. Thank you for sponsoring.
1: Yeah, I started reading that one too, uh, and I was really enjoying it. So I'm glad that they were a sponsor. All right. Uh, so with that, we will shift gears into new books. Uh, we are there's still some some good ones. We're yeah, September, October, November. There's a ton, so I'm excited to keep talking. Um, so my first pick is uh, "Make It Scream, Make It Burn," a collection of essays by Leslie Jamison, uh, which came out September 24th from Little Brown. Um, and I think that this book is probably my most anticipated nonfiction book of the year. Um, mostly because I just. I loved her first essay collection, The Empathy Exams, just so very much. Um, and since then, she also wrote a memoir called The Reckoning, which I have, but for whatever reason, like never got around to reading. Um, but I, I just love Leslie Jameson as an essayist. I think she's so interesting. So um, I have been listening to this one actually as an audiobook, thanks to um, a influencer review copy program from Libro FM. So that's been kind of cool too. I haven't done a collection of essays on audio in a while. Um but this collection has it, – it just covers a whole cool range of subjects. Um, there's one I say about the past life memories of kids. Uh, there's one about her um, kind of romantic connections in Las Vegas and eloping to Las Vegas to marry her current husband. Um, there's one about uh, this whale called Blue 52 Blue who might be the loneliest whale in the world. Um, there's one I'm in the middle of about a museum in Croatia that just has like ephemera and stuff from uh, – relationships that have ended so it's like a museum of broken relationships um there's one about her feelings about becoming a stepmother and like stepmother stepmothers in pop culture um it's just it's so interesting um one of the threads that kind of runs through the essays, I think, is about um, – there are many threads, but sort of connected to writing and journalism and reporting and her position as a journalist and a writer in relationship to her stories and her sources. Like, she's sort of always thinking about that and exploring what that looks like, uh, which I find kind of fascinating and and giving her kind of conflicted feelings about being someone who is kind of taking stories from people and then reusing them for her own purposes and what does that mean and what what do we miss and all of that. So, um she's also like writes about herself really interestingly, she kind of questions her place and her position and her reactions and relationships and motivations and kind of is always trying to figure that out. So, I just think it's she's just a really interesting thinker um and so the essays are just fun to kind of dip in and out of on audio. And it's kind of like, it feels almost podcasty in a way. Like she's just talking to me while I'm driving to and from work. Um, so yeah, I really am enjoying this essay collection. Definitely did not disappoint. Uh, so that is Make It Scream, Make It Burn by Leslie Jameson. I
0: wish you could have seen my face when you were talking about the loneliest whale in the world. Oh,
1: <laughs> yeah. That's the first essay. It's so It's so lovely. It's a really lovely essay. Oh, it's like a, a positive essay about a sad whale? <laughs> Yeah, it is. I mean, it's about, like, the scientists who have studied this whale and, like, why he is the loneliest whale and, like, just kind of what they've learned and the people who are kind of um, obsessed with this whale and his story. And, it's uh, yeah, it's actually, like, very sweet and lovely and also, like, also sad. Like, kind of everything is, I guess. Are the scientists friends with the- – I'm sorry to be hung up on this whale, but <laughs> –
0: they, does, like, do they interact with the whale, or do they just study it from afar? I don't remember for sure. Um, okay, so you're saying read the book to find out the whale's fate
1: is really yes. what's going on here. Got it. Yes, teasing the book. <laughs> read the book. Yeah.
0: Oh, I hope that whale's okay. All right. So, <laughs> my, speaking of wow, what a segue. Um, my <laughs> sorry. This book is – this book that I am about to talk about makes me so stressed that any opportunity to link it with something like even just a whale, but hopefully the whale is going to be okay, makes me relieved. Okay, so this is On Fire – The Burning Case for a Green New Deal by Naomi Klein. It was out September 17th from Simon and Schuster. Uh, For decades, Naomi Klein has been the foremost chronicler of the economic war waged on both people and the planet. So this book is a collection of essays that is ranging from, uh, I think, a number of years. And she kind of gathers together this case for why we should be Um, well, first of all, extremely concerned. Uh, If you are not already, please read this book. And, um, but I would say, okay, so it's not just like, read this book and you're going to get really freaked out, right? Because that no one wants to really do that because we're a lot of people right now are freaked out, understandably, about a lot of things. So what she does with this, especially in the very opening essay, which is kind of the newest piece, I think, in the whole, uh, because the second one has to do with... um, the uh bp spill. So it's it's a little bit further back. But the opening she talks about Greta Thunberg and she discusses kind of the what the green new deal is, why we need it, what is possible um if people are able to kind of work together or push for this kind of thing. And so it also is very sort of like um very urgent sounding but also very uh optimistic. I'm not even optimistic. That's probably the wrong word. I would say hopeful. So what she covers, she goes through topics ranging from the clash between ecological time and our culture of the perpetual now um, to the soaring history of humans changing and evolving rapidly in the face of grave threats to rising white supremacy and fortress borders as a form of climate barbarism, which she's saying, like, look, when people who stop denying um, that climate change is a thing, They there has been some evidence that they will then immediately shift into, okay, well, then we basically need to instill these draconian laws and we need to be on guard for that kind of behavior, right? So it's like shut down the borders, maybe even more so than they already are, and make sure that people who are in areas affected by climate change and who are, frankly, a lot of people who are not in extremely wealthy countries because they are the ones suffering the effects of all of this. So it's then saying, it's basically... Putting all of this crap on them and then being like, no, you can't come to our place of safety, um, which is ridiculous. So, uh, this bans from the, her essays talk about the Great Barrier Reef, which of course is, I, I was about to say dealing with a lot right now, but you, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, to, uh, the Pacific Northwest, which is dealing with a lot of, um, smoke sort of pollution to post hurricane Puerto Rico to, uh, the Vatican. Uh, trying this ecological conversion. If you've read the Pope's, uh, in, I think is it either encyclical or cyclical, but basically he wrote this thing about the environment, which was very pro-environment, which is great. Um, so she makes this case that we can rise to this existential challenge of climate change only if we are willing to transform the systems that produce this crisis. And one of the things that I found the most sort of compelling about that Was she was talking about how? Because I was like, I don't know if we can do that kind of societal change in like the ten years they're talking about. And she brings up World War II and how we completely changed, um, like our like all these factories had to transform, right, and start producing like aircraft and all this stuff, and our general sort of economy changed. She talks about the New Deal and how. So many people were employed into, you know, like creating roadways and artwork and all of this stuff where um, basically a lot of things that are that they made in like the 1930s are still around today and we don't even realize this was all the product of this sort of brief time where our entire uh, this system in the United States changed. And then she talks about the Marshall Plan where they rebuilt Europe post World War II. So she also discusses the problems with all of these. Um, there were some definite sort of systemic racist issues with all of them, <laughs> I think. Uh, so she's not saying like, oh, this is, we should do an exact copy of this. We, we need to improve upon it. But she's saying that the Green New Deal that is currently proposed also addresses that kind of thing. Like it acknowledges that this was missing before. Um, One of the things that she said that I really liked the most was that uh, these historical chapters show us that when ambitious goals and forceful policy mechanisms are aligned, it is possible to change virtually all aspects of society on an extremely tight deadline, just as we need to do in the face of climate breakdown today. The failure to do so is a choice not an inevitability of human nature. And I was just like, go Naomi Klein. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She's really trying to draw a lot of attention to this. This book is again, extremely new, but with um, essays ranging from a like again i think like 10 to 15 years in like that period and uh her she's very ex- like extremely well informed on all of these sort of related topics for this so it's it's a very good go to book if you're wanting to get a good grounding in a lot of talking points um again that is on fire the burning case for a green new deal by naomi klein
1: excellent that sounds really good kind of intense and a lot but really good yeah so i I feel like I'm cheating just a little bit with my second new book pick because it's actually not new this year. It was new last year, but it's out in paperback now and I'm really excited about it. So I decided since this is my podcast, I can do what I want and I can talk about a book that's coming out in paperback and that's fine um so uh the book is Four Colored Girls Who Have Considered Politics and it's by Donna Brazile Yolanda Carraway Leah Doughty and Minion Moore uh and it is a kind of biography memoir book about the lives of black women in American politics um so the the four women who are the authors and kind of featured uh, people in the book have lived through uh, lived and worked behind the scenes in politics for like 30 years um back all the way into like the Kennedys um and so they, these four women are friends. They call themselves the colored girls. And they um, have spent their lives kind of in public service in politics and elections and whatnot and have become friends and colleagues and connected. And they uh, work together to, to try and change things. So um, they, their story, um, most of them, their story starts like back with Jesse Jackson and the Kennedys, but then they have all – in various ways, worked on campaigns of presidential candidates like Walter Mondale, Michael Dukakis, Bill Clinton, Al Gore, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton. Um, They've also been in the corporate world. They've been on campaigns and unions all over the place. Um, And so this is just a look at kind of American history, contemporary political history through the lives and experiences of these four Black women. Um, And I just, I think... I mean, that's something I'm really interested in, but I like books that come at it from a new angle. And I think that their voices and their stories are things like we just haven't heard about as much. And so when you have, you know, candidates like Stacey Abrams in Georgia, just like starting to change the way that we think about politics and who can serve and who who we, we should listen to. I I just think that's really fascinating. That's why I'm excited for this one. Um and just getting to like hear their stories and hear kind of what they have learned through being political actors in these very significant um campaigns and moments. And so um, I haven't gotten real far into it yet, but it's it's really interesting so far. It's a it's a good Good kind of political read with um kind of a new new perspective that I appreciate. So uh, that is four colored girls who have considered politics by Donna Brazil, Yolanda Caraway, Leah Dowtry, and Minion Moore.
0: Oh, I'm glad you talked about that. And yes, this is your podcast. Well, and, and mine. <laughs> our, but that's mine. Our podcast. And yeah. uh, you can do whatever you want within our very carefully structured framework. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so my second new book for this week is in fact a journal of sorts i thought let's go light and easy after on fire by naomi klein which so pick that up and then to a sort of take a little break get embrace your weird colon, Face Your Fears and Unleash Creativity by Felicia Day. Felicia Day is, of course, the kind of uh, nerd queen, if you will. Um, She did the internet series, I believe it's called The Guild. She was on Supernatural playing an excellent character, or at least I'm in season seven, so don't tell me anything, but she's on it and she's great. Anyway, and in this, she basically gives you exercises that, uh, quote, empower you to be fearless so that you can rediscover these things that bring you joy and sort of make you, I guess, reach for your imagination, if you will. I think a lot of us don't access our imagination very often as adults, which is what children's movies warned us would happen. And yet here we are. So um, – I enjoy this journal because I tend to say that I'm not a very creative person. My oldest brother is an artist and he thinks of things that I'm always like, that's amazing. I have no idea how your brain works. And I can't. So when I saw this, Felicia Day is extremely like, "If you, she's like, if you're saying you're not creative, stop it. Stop it right now. And I'm like, oh, thanks, Felicia Day. That's nice. And she gives you a lot of, again, it's kind of structured exercises, but uh structured in a way that you can take in any direction. So one of the things is she gives you a list of words and she's like just randomly write like connect to like pairs of of these words. And so you do that and then she's like okay so draw those <laughs> like what those word pairs are like ah! in your brain. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's just a, I think a really nice way of getting you out of kind of your rote uh day-to-day habits and encouraging you to think a little differently. Which, again, I really appreciate. So that is, again, Embrace Your Weird, Face Your Fears, and Unleash Creativity by Felicia Day. Um, I have a question, Kim. Yes, Alice.
1: Which is slightly
0: breaking our format, and I apologize. Okay. But it's fine. I thought of a news-related book that I would like to throw in there, if possible,
1: real quick. Oh, yes, please. Do it.
0: So this is not making any kind of uh, statement to either side, but I just realized. So there's a large national discussion happening right now about our president possibly being impeached. And if you would like more information on the history of that, actually, a while ago on this podcast, I talked about impeachment in American history, which I read. It's pretty short. It talks about the three presidents who have been it's either the three of them – they've all been impeached, right? We've had three total because Johnson, Nixon, and Clinton.
1: Nixon resigned before he was impeached, but he was facing an impeachment inquiry.
0: Thank you for that. This is why we have fact checkers on this very podcast live. <laughs> anyway, so um, I, I really liked it. I thought it was extremely informative, and it actually changed my opinion on what I thought I believed about impeachment. So um, again, that
1: is impeachment in American history, and it's just helpful. Excellent. I am glad that you broke format to share that. That's a good recommendation. I remember you were really into that one when we talked about it. So very cool. So we, uh, for our our, um, themed section this week, we thought we would bring back one we did previously because it seems like it was pretty popular and also it's good for the time of year, and that is cozy nonfiction. So, um, we both kind of interpreted this one in our own ways, but since it's uh, just, uh, we're just into the fall season and looking to kind of cuddle up with some good books, we're going to try to recommend some cozy reads. So, my first one is called uh, The Good Pig The Extraordinary Life of Christopher Hogwood by Cy Montgomery. Uh, and so this is a memoir about adopting a sickly little piglet named Christopher Hogswood, who they nursed back to health and then turned into a 750-pound giant pig and was a member of their family. Um, so Simon Montgomery is a, a, a writer. She's She writes a lot about nature. Um, one of her, I think her most famous book that I recognize is The Soul of an Octopus, which I have not read, but of her is really good. And she um, writes in The Good Pig about her um, connections to animals and how she's always sort of felt an affinity with them um that she does not feel with people. Uh, She also, so Christopher Hogswood, as he grows and becomes more part of their family, he also provides these kind of connections that she wants to home and community and stuff like that. Um, The book is also about how Christopher Hogswood like affected his community and became this like beloved figure in the town near where they live. Um, Neighbors started bringing him scraps and food. Um, He got to, they got to know his intelligence and his mischief. Um, He was featured on the local news. There were some little girls who live next door who always came over to play with him and it's just like so sweet and charming there i have two like caveats with it uh the first is that the book is from 2005 and so some of the language she uses feels uh dated to me um she's used the word retarded a couple of times which i think is just not an appropriate term to use anymore um but i may- you know from 2005 is maybe less um Less jarring, So that is one thing I have noticed. um, But I like that has not really affected the charmingness of it to me. Um, I also have not quite finished it. And the person who has like pushed me to read this book repeatedly uh, mentioned that uh, the ending is very emotional and that you will definitely cry if you are a person who cries when you read books, uh, as I am a person who cries when I read books. So I am planning to finish it uh, when I am in my house so I can cry with abandon um, because the ending is apparently very sad. But otherwise, it is a very charming a cozy book. So that is The Good Pig, The Extraordinary Life of Christopher Hogswood by Cy Montgomery. I've been meaning to read The Soul of an
0: Octopus for like a while. Me too. Yeah, uh, me too. Here we are.
1: Another for the library
0: hold list. Okay. So my first book in what I am calling cozy nonfiction, the sequel, is uh, (laughs) Life in the Garden by Penelope Lively. Penelope lively is the winner of the booker prize not for this book but you know you win the booker prize and then you're like i love gardens i'm gonna write about them so she basically takes up these sort of key themes of time and memory and she has these um she's in her 80s when she writes this book so she has these lifelong passions of her art and literature and gardening in this um I don't even, I don't think it's a memoir. It feels more like an exploration of the garden, if you will. And I know that that huh. doesn't sound really inviting, but just trust me that it is. So she she does talk a little bit about her life. So she grew up in Egypt and she talks about their garden there and um how she felt like her mother, like her mother's influence in terms of the plants she was planting in the garden. And then she kind of peppers that, if you will, with um, painters like Monet and just the, the types of flowers that they chose and what that means. And she then talks about literature and she goes into the gardens in books and kind of like she talks about Virginia Woolf and she talks about the secret garden, which she's kind of not a fan of, which it's always kind of fun to read why people don't like, you know, like extreme classics. Like if they're grumpy about them and you're like, why? (laughs) And so she gets into that a little bit, which I really enjoyed. And it's overall, it's just like, again, it's a cozy book because you just sit down you're like, I'm going to read about flowers. It made me think about Um, Like my grandfather's garden, which was just a lot of like kind of overhanging trees and ferns. And it was this kind of like dark and cool. And I hadn't thought about that in years. So it was also this really lovely kind of trip down this nostalgic lane, if you will. So if you want to read about gardens in general, then uh, and some kind of looking at art with a really specific focus that you might not normally – look at it with, unless you are a gardener, in which case you're going to love this for sure. Um, then I recommend
1: Life in the Garden by Penelope Lively. That does sound very cozy. While you were talking, I like it would be amazing to have a collection of essays that's just people being grumpy about beloved classic books. Does that exist?
0: Yes. And uh, I'm going to find the title. Uh, you're going to talk about the next book, and I will tell you it after you are done.
1: Yes, I want to read that book so hard right now. I don't even know what it is, but that just sounds amazing. Um, all right. So while Alice Googles to uh, <laughs> get a book recommendation for me personally, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, another book that I found extremely cozy and charming, and that is uh, The Curse of the Boyfriend Sweater, Essays on Crafting by Oaken. Um, And so part of the reason I chose this one is because fall always um, makes me want to take up knitting and crocheting again. So I crochet and I am teaching myself to knit. Um, But like during the summer, like I don't want to really, I don't know. I just don't do it a lot in the summer because I'm out doing other things or it just doesn't feel quite right. So, um, and I, I, it just sort of is starting to feel like fall in Minnesota where I live, and um, I have decided that like I am going to knit myself a sweater, like I'm going to do it. And so this book has been sort of like calling to me. Um, I've always meant to read it, to read it. So as the the seasons have been changing, I have wanted to get back to knitting. So that's part of why I was excited about this book. So um, it is uh, exactly what it sounds like. It is a collection of essays on crafting. So Alana um, is in her 20s when she is writing these essays. Uh, I think like maybe mid-ish 20s. Um, So I feel like they do have that very like 20s women particular kinds of problems vibe. Um, But I really like, I like that. And I I think it's fun to sort of revisit that time when like you had problems, but they were different problems than you have (laughs) in your 30s, um, which are different from the problems you have in your 40s and 50s. So we all have our own problems. Um, And I I feel like she does have some um, good perspective in the kind of the approach she's taking. Um, She writes in the first couple of essays about the loss of her two friends in the early 20s one to cancer and went to leukemia and how that affected her and how that has kind of uh, colored her Worldview sense. Um, She also uses a ton of really good crafting puns and crafting metaphors, uh, which I just love and I find them very charming. The collection is organized around like pieces of a knitting project, and so it's kind of what this, you know, casting on, restarting, frogging, these different parts of knitting, um, and then kind of uh, stories about herself and her life that are connected to that, and then kind of what lessons you can take from that particular aspect of the crafting life or the crafting experience. So Um, I think it is just really charming and it is easy and it is funny. Um, and if you are a person who crafts, but hasn't spent a lot of time really like thinking deeply about the meaning of it all, like you just sort of sit and knit while you're watching TV. Like this is kind of a fun one to just like give it a little bit different perspective and maybe bring some, um, deeper meaning or deeper focus or like more meditative quality to some of the the crafting that you do. So, um, I have, I found it very interesting and kind of charming and right in my alley of like fall activities and cozy activities that I like to do. Uh, so that is The Curse of the Boyfriend Sweater, Essays on Crafting by Elena Oaken. Okay. I apparently
0: lied and I can't find this title right now. However, let me tell you, <laughs> there was a group of grumpy – Uh, I thought at the time when I read it that they were like Harvard College students or something, but I think they were in fact older. And it was like three people, I think it was two guys and a girl, and they wrote this book that was something like 50 classics that no one should read. And it was written like decades <laughs> ago. And I thought it was hilarious. And I disagreed with a lot of their opinions, but I was still like, way to write that. Therefore, I will find the title for next time and everyone should just check it out. Excellent. Okay. So my other cozy read is, uh it also has the word life in the title. I realized this late uh while making our show notes, but I have two, I have a uh, what is the one I just talked about? Life in the Garden. And then I have My Life in Middlemarch by Rebecca Mead. Um, we talked about, I think, Bleaker House by her uh, on a previous podcast. So this one is a little older. That was uh, her first sort of classic novel book. So basically, she relates Middlemarch to her life. She walks you through the book. This is, of course, the most famous, I believe, uh, novel by George Eliot, the Victorian author, who is insanely brilliant. Um, So when she... First, read this, she was, I believe, 17. And she connected very intensely with the main character, Dorothea Brooke, or one of the main characters, Dorothea Brooke, who was another, you know, young woman character heading out into her life, not sure like which way she's going to be going. And then she kind of walks you through not only important sections of the book and what they sort of, um, why they're brilliant and still relevant, but also her own life and kind of what's going on in George Eliot's life. And it's such a wonderful melding and it's not done in any kind of like, it's, it's extremely well plotted basically for a, you know, nonfiction book. Um, she, I would, I'd would say it's like a, it's a blend of like memoir biography and literary criticism, which I, I feel like you, you find sometimes, but not often. Um, she, she, mm-hmm. Also, this book was not written, by the way, until George Eliot was 51 years old, which is also – it's one of her earlier novels. Uh, She only wrote eight total. And she didn't start writing novels until late in her life because she said that she didn't want to write a bad novel. And so she was like, I'm going to wait until I am a good writer and then I'm going to start doing this, which is a, a method, which I believe actually <laughs> Rebecca, Rebecca Mead disagrees with a little bit. One thing I really enjoyed about this, um, I read Middlemarch when I was 19. And uh, I had was taking a year off from college. And one of my professors said, well, read, I was like, what should I read? I don't want to just have a lost year of learning. And she was like, well, read Middlemarch. And so then I emailed her questions. And I, I was, it was like a very intense reading of this. And I related to Dorothea Brooke so hard. And reading this made me Realize, You know when um sometimes people can feel a little possessive of like a fictional character? Like, no, I relate to them so much. Like, you can't have them. They're mine. Is that just me? Maybe that's just me. No. <laughs> Thank you for that validation, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> so I felt that about Dorothea Brooke. But reading – because I was always like, I relate the most of any character I've encountered to Dorothea Brooke. And reading this, when she did – at first I was like, hey <laughs> – you know, that's <laughs> she's mine. But it was wonderful because it made me realize when she talked about what she related to about her, it's completely different from what I did. I was like, but Dorothea Brooke is very um, into giving up things for God. And she, her whole goal is to, you know, marry this man who she can help with his great work, which when I was 19, I was like, yeah, both of those. So I was totally into those things. And then of course I turned out to be very gay and <laughs> did not- <laughs> end up doing actually either of them. I kind of just, I don't give up things. Anyway. So it's, again, it kind of makes you, even if you haven't read Middlemarch, I think that it makes you kind of think about your life and how you relate to books and how amazing, uh, especially kind of classic novels that have survived the test of time and been, you know, like vetted as if it were like uh, by time. Um, how much they can tell us about ourselves and open us up to this compassion for other people and what they might be going through. So it's one of those books that makes you think about all that, which is
1: awesome. So that is My Life in Middlemarch by Rebecca Mead. Excellent. That's a great pick. I think books about books are some of the coziest reads for sure. Um, There's just something very like nice about sitting down and reading about a book and then like reading the book and the book is about and all of that. So really cool. That was fun. Um, Yeah, I would love to hear other people what they think about when they think about cozy nonfiction and what some of their favorite cozy, warm and fuzzy reads are because I feel like we're just in a a time in the world when that can be really, really nice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we will uh, close this week's episode as we usually do by talking about the books that we are reading uh, right now at this very moment. Um, so the book that I am reading is uh, Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland" by... Northern Ireland by Patrick Graydon Keefe. Uh, and this, uh, you we have mentioned it in this episode of the podcast already. It was long listed for both the Kirkus Prize and the National Book Award. Um, I kind of anticipate it's going to make other awards lists. So that's why I finally um, got around to picking it up. Um, I, I had it in my house because um, Linda Holmes, who's one of my favorite pop culture critics, talked about the book on an episode of Pop Culture Happy Hour a long time ago um, as a, a thing that she had read and really, really admired because of how well it, um, kind of articulated and explained what actually the troubles in Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland in like the sixties and seventies, what, like what that was really about. Um, and she said, she thought it was one of the best books at explaining that. And so I thought that seems like a, a, it's a great recommendation and that's something I really want to learn about too. So, um, I, I bought it and then of course I didn't read it because that's like what I do. Uh, and so it's been sitting on my shelf for a long time and I finally picked it up and it is, it's great. Um, so it is kind of a dual narrative story where um, the first one is about the disappearance of um, a mother of um, many children. I can't remember how many now, Um, but she uh, disappears. She is kidnapped basically by a group uh, that, you know, kind of don't know anything about when the book starts. And then it also shares a story of these um, sisters who join the IRA and then become part of the like radical most radical wing of that group. Uh, and so it talks about what they're doing at the time. And then what happened to this woman who is kidnapped and what happened to her children and how all of these things kind of twist in and on, on each other and how complicated that whole situation is. And I feel like um, even just partway in, I have a much better appreciation for it than I I used to. So um, it is it is really well done. The writing is great. He's very good at explaining things. It's, it's a page turner. It's very, very good. So uh, Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland by Patrick Raiden Keefe. I really, really want to read that. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Dang. Okay,
0: so I am jealous that you have it because I am like number one million on, on the <laughs> library hold list. That's just going to be the theme is my library hold list for this episode, other than cozy books. So what I am currently reading is actually Motherhood So White by Never T D Austin, our sponsor. Mm-hmm. Again, I was I was already reading this before we knew they were a sponsor, but it's it's honestly so good and such a different perspective from what you know. You said that you'd started it, right? Like,
1: about how far did you get? Uh, Only a couple chapters, because then you said you were reading it and it was sponsored. And I was like, okay, I got to focus on something else. So I haven't gone very far, but I really want to go back to it.
0: Yeah, it's really, really great. So I am uh, I'm looking forward to finishing that one. Excellent. Um, So in conclusion, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Tell
1: us what cozy nonfiction means to you. Yes. And if you feel so inclined, please take a few minutes to read and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, this is something that helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can subscribe so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, so with that, I am Kim Ukura, And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.